Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Apologetic series, recorded July 5th, 2022, titled, Christian Scholar Exposes Minimal Resurrection Facts. I've seen talk and discussion about like the minimal facts case versus the maximal facts case. And uh, I've, I've been a kind of minimal facts guy myself, championed by guys like Dr. Craig, Dr. Mike Lacona, Gary Habermas. I think it's fatally weak because it was like a bait and switch. I've already had my doubts about the minimal facts argument being strong enough. I think it's too weak, uh, indeed fatally weak as a case. She may have convinced me that the maximal data case is like the the better, the stronger case. So, and uh, I, I may be a proponent of that at this time. Well, that was easy. Maybe the minimal facts approach to the resurrection of Jesus is truly dead after all. You didn't kill Anakin Skywalker. I did. Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians. Over the years, we've heard most of the well-known Christian apologists attempting to defend the resurrection of Jesus using the minimal facts approach. What came out was the argument I called the minimal facts argument. We're going to argue from just a few facts. The minimal facts approach um, only considers facts that meet two criteria. And I've filled an overflowing playlist demonstrating why the minimal facts case is simply nowhere good enough to convince a skeptic. Well, it turns out you don't need a skeptic to tell you this. Christians like Eric from Testify understand the problem. I'm afraid that the popularity of the minimalist approach has actually helped create this monster called Apologia. Like a counter-apologist like yourself, in, in, in t- it's giving you a lot of material to work with. I'll put, okay. it, I'll put it that way. And he's not the only one. Dr. Lydia McGrew, her husband Tim McGrew, and Dr. Jonathan McClatchy, rounding out the theological thruple, have been out there with me, also pointing out the minimal facts flaws. Lydia, Pelagia, I think that's how you pronounce his name, recently had some conversations with Capturing Christianity. Pelagia, 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 I don't know. And just a quick point of order here. Let me also add that you see me reclining here. I saw some rather nasty comments from some skeptics about that. Uh, About a year and three months ago, I developed a uh, very severe uh, chronic pain condition. And I have better days and worse days, but it's not going away. I don't want to see any such superficial comments from any of you. We're here to discuss ideas only. Well, maybe Cameron's hat. That said... Let's get to why this PhD-level Christian warns that a minimal facts approach is fatally flawed. The minimalist type, which I would include all of those under that umbrella, it does rely more upon scholarly consensus and tries to find facts that have at least a certain level of scholarly consensus 
that includes uh, unbelieving scholars, skeptical scholars, as well as Christians. And it does not rely on the proposition that the gospel accounts of the resurrection are even what the original witnesses claimed. Because in the minimalist case, you have the claim that the apostles or the uh, disciples of Jesus had appearance experiences that convinced them that he was raised from the dead. His disciples had experiences that they believed were appearances of the risen Jesus. And what people don't know is that that appearance experience fact does not mean the appearance experiences we find in the Gospels. In other words, um, you know, it'll be like, hey, we get 90 plus percent consensus on the part of uh, scholars across the scholarly spectrum, including liberals and so on, that they had appearance experiences. Yay, how exciting. And in order to get that large of a consensus, you have to make it just appearance experiences of some kind. So, for example, it could be, it would count, okay, if, if Jesus appeared to be floating, okay, like if it appeared that his feet didn't touch the ground, that would count. Or say that merely one or two of them had some kind of visionary experience, that would also count. Or you'll see quoted, and, and I, we've got to stop quoting this, it just bothers me, Gerd Ludeman saying something like, you know, it could be taken as historically certain that the disciples had apparent, you know, experiences of the risen Jesus. It may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Yay! Wow, how exciting! Garrett Ludemann. And then when you look, that's like taken out of context. When you look at it in context, Ludemann says that all the physical stuff in the gospel accounts was added later as an embellishment. And he says the original seeing was a seeing in the spirit. I don't even know what he means by that. When she's right, she's right. The Ludeman passage is an out-of-context quote mine. I'd like to take a second to thank our sponsor, Atlas VPN. Remember last year when I spent a month compiling this recreation of Star Wars A New Hope without using a single clip from Star Wars A New Hope? A lot of those sources are no longer commercially available. So finding them took me to some pretty sketchy corners of the internet where I definitely did not want to be tracked. Or earlier this year, when I put together this virtual mega-debate with Kent Hovind, to assemble that, without exaggeration, I had to download thousands of videos and transcripts. Did you know that YouTube blocks your IP address when you start archiving a whole channel? Well, they do. These are just two examples of recent projects that would have been literally impossible if I wasn't protecting my connection with a VPN. Well, right now, the fine folks at Atlas VPN are running a huge discount for Polygia subscribers. For a limited time, you can join over 6 million users worldwide and get a three-year subscription for just $1.99 a month with a 30-day money-back guarantee. That's 82% off today for you. So tap on the link in the video description below to get started today. And it's not just protection. If you're Canadian like me, you probably have no idea of the mountain of shocking faith-based programming just waiting to be discovered when you use Atlas VPN to convince Netflix, Prime, or Disney that you're actually in America. Or if you're American, you can escape your theocracy with unique content from literally anywhere else in the world. If you'd like to stay away from prying eyes of all kinds, increase your security, head off identity theft, expand your streaming media options, and do it all for a limited time offer of 82% off, head over today to get.atlas.com apologia, and you'll also be supporting this channel and its mission. 
Bart Ehrman, he doesn't even acknowledge group appearances. And he says, if there were group appearances, they, maybe there were, but if there were, they were like seeing a, a, a figure at a distance. Well, both of those guys get counted because Ehrman says they had some kind of an experience. They both get counted in this consensus acknowledging appearances. Now, that's extremely important because if you have watered down that appearance experience claim in order to get such a big uh, consensus on it, then it's very hard to argue that Jesus really was physically risen from the dead. Like, if, if you are an unbeliever, you could account for it in a wider variety of ways. If we don't have that they even claimed those physical details, then, you know, maybe maybe they just had uh, visions, for example. Exactly. One or two visions completely covers the evidence. So mm-hmm. that's at the heart of the reason why I think it's fatally weak. Fatally weak. Because that appearance claim is actually much weaker. And I think a lot of people who do a minimal facts case, who go out there and like do it in debates, because I've, I've heard them, okay, they, they, in all innocence, will use it as if the scholars acknowledge way more than what the scholars really acknowledge. And who is to blame for this fatally weak strategy? And unfortunately, some of the things that Gary Habermas has written can give rise to this. A few years ago, he wrote an article that was published in The Stream um, online. And he said he could rule out all the alternatives to the resurrection of Jesus using only facts that are granted by this huge majority of scholars. So I think we can take the facts which the most skeptical New Testament scholars allow that Jesus was raised from the dead. Okay, how are you going to do that? And then as he went on in the article, he said, and then Jesus was seen just a few days later having conversations with his friends, just like any of us. Whoa, that is not acknowledged by a very large majority of scholars. And so it was like a bait and switch. Bait and switch. And I don't think he meant to be doing a bait and switch, but epistemologically, in fact, it was a bait and switch that he suddenly was talking about Jesus being seen having conversations with his friends. And that's how he was ruling out alternatives. But that is, in fact, not acknowledged. And I don't mean I got to emphasize, I don't mean just that the skeptics don't acknowledge that these were real. I mean, the skeptics don't even acknowledge that this is what was claimed. Like me. I don't acknowledge that this is what was claimed. The large majority of scholars don't even acknowledge that the gospel accounts are what was claimed. Wow. So how are we going to rule out alternatives to physical resurrection? So that's really at the heart of why I think it's too weak, uh, indeed fatally weak as a case. Ouch. The extremely watered-down appearance claim that is the only way you can get this 90 plus percent scholarly consensus. So for example, suppose you get into a debate with Bart Ehrman and he says, well, I don't admit group appearances. I don't admit the empty two. It's, you're gonna look pretty silly if you stand there and go, but Bart, 70%, 75% of scholars uh, you know, admit the empty tomb. He's gonna go, so what? So you're gonna need to be prefer- prepared to do better than that. I would say probably the majority of skeptical scholars think those physical details were added. Isn't that kind of suspicious in itself? If, if we're gonna access what scholars think, 
and scholars think that the physical details were added. Shouldn't that make us wonder? Well, okay, if they felt like they had to add physical details, maybe they had no true physical details to talk about. That's a really good point. Maybe there were no physical details to talk about. Because if he was really physically risen from the dead and appeared to his disciples, we would have true things that they could say so that nobody needed to make up and nobody needed to embellish. I want to make one more comment here. In a fairly recent um, YouTube discussion with Pelagia, I think that's how you pronounce his name. It's good to meet you, Pelagia. Good to meet you. You had to have heard of him. I'm sure everybody of hears of everybody. Uh-oh. Okay. He's, He's become trouble. a legend in the world of atheists. Pelagia <laughs> asked Dr. Michael Lacuna if it was possible that the resurrection accounts were embellished and if it was, um, you know, if there was something that should cause us to think that they definitely were not embellished. Is there anything historically, do you think, that makes it impossible that, that some appearances really happened, but maybe some are embellished and, and largely legendary? Hmm. Okay, fair question. And... Dr. Lacona said, well, I think it's impossible to know. Do the Gospels, uh, in terms of the appearances of Jesus, do they contain any legendary elements? Well, that's impossible to know, I think, uh, whether they do. He said to Pelagi, I think it's impossible to know, because embellishments can arise on a story pretty quickly uh, in, in the ancient world. So I think that shows you the kinds of concessions that minimalists can be prepared to make. That was a pretty big concession by Mike. You are so right. Minimalists are, are trying to do it, do it through Paul, do it through Paul, do it through Paul. And um, I think that's a terrible idea. But once you realize how truly uh, wimpy, if I could put it that way, that appearance claim is, how little is really acknowledged by that great majority of scholars and that it could be, it could even be an appearance that would be evidence against the physical resurrection and could be included in there. I know that's a little shocking, but it's true. If all that they ever experienced was Jesus floating above the ground and they never experienced anything any more physical, that would be evidence maybe that he'd been ascended, you know, he'd been taken up into heaven, but he, he didn't physically raise. If my critique of the minimalist approach is right, we don't have a choice. If I'm right that it's fatally weak, then we've got to do better than that in the name of intellectual honesty, right? Now, to be fair, Lydia doesn't merely bash minimal facts strategists. She has a method she advocates for that she calls maximal data. So here's okay. my, my approximately one minute version. The disciples claimed, as we find in the in the Gospels, uh, that they had lengthy conversations with Jesus uh, after he had died, uh, that they had uh, the ability to touch him, that he ate with them on more than one occasion, that he stayed with them for several weeks. Um, all of these things that are found in the Gospels. As Lydia's single source is the Bible, she is likely anticipated a for the Bible tells me so response. This doesn't mean I have misunderstood her nuanced claim that the Gospels are independent sources, but rather that I have considered and rejected this claim. The stands. This is what the people, original people in a position to know, claimed. Like all the scholars she was referencing earlier, I reject this notion. I do not think that the Gospels reflect what original people in a position to know claimed. 
I doubt we would even agree on who such people are. There are three possible explanations of their claiming this. I'm not interested in the explanations for a claim I don't accept, but okay. One is that they were deceivers, they were lying. Another is that they were mistaken. And a third is that they were telling the truth. Or a combination. The context of their making these claims, which we find attested, for example, in the early chapters of Acts. Single source. Shows that they knew they were risking their lives for doing this. And that really rules out that they were lying. Even granting Acts? I'm hard-pressed to see evidence that more than one or two of the original disciples were out preaching. And history doesn't support this early persecution narrative, as Dr. Bart Ehrman tried to explain to Lydia's husband, Tim. 5,000 people are joined to the church, and there's no opposition until chapter 4, when two of these people, Peter and John, are opposed. So we have 8,000 converts, and we have two people thrown in prison. Now, are we supposed to imagine that these 8,000 people who have just converted to believe in Jesus are not telling anybody about the stories they've heard? Are they not telling their spouses and their children and their slaves and their next-door neighbors? Uh, are there Romans on every corner or Jewish authorities on every corner and in every household saying, no, you can't tell the story of Jesus to all of these 8,000 people? I think that's absolutely incredible. People are telling stories, and they're not being threatened with imprisonment. There are only two people who are imprisoned in the very story that you're talking about. The content of their claims, which we find in the gospel accounts themselves, shows that it's very unlikely that they were mistaken, because that's the kind of thing that you're very unlikely to be mistaken about with these all these different groups seeing him and interacting with him in all these different ways at different times. Yeah, I don't think any of that happened. Therefore, the best explanation of what they claimed is that they were telling the truth and Jesus was really risen from the dead. The best explanation for parts of the Bible being true is that all of the Bible is true. Gotcha. So how would you respond to this objection that it's sort of question-begging to assume that the Gospels are reliable. Well, obviously, to say that the resurrection accounts are true is building in the idea that Jesus rose from the dead. That would be question beg. But saying the gospel resurrection accounts record what the people in a position to know claimed, while it is not widely granted by scholars. Nor skeptical YouTubers. That the fact that something isn't widely granted isn't the same thing as question begging. And we're prepared to argue even for that proposition that this is what they claimed. Of course, reliability of the Gospels would be tough to fit into your one-minute pitch. Good Friday, I think it was this year, I was invited by Areopagus Forum to give the pre a presentation. And so I, I made that my, you know, 30-minute level version of the maximalist case that shows how I would bring in more information, how I would bring in more detail, and so forth. Perhaps if there's interest, I will one day go through that entire 30-minute presentation. But I have a feeling it would completely break my jingle. What did they claim? Well, they said that different groups of them had lengthy conversations with Jesus. They said that on different occasions, people were able to touch Jesus. 
the women claimed that several of them were together, saw Jesus and grasped his feet. Well, they said that Jesus ate with them on more than one occasion. I feel like I'm fairly representing her case when I say that she wants me to make a leap that because some names and places and customs correspond with historical names, places, and customs, that all of the events described necessarily happened as well. Lydia ignores that the most convincing lies have a kernel of truth. Most lies have a kernel of truth in them. Every lie you tell holds a shred of truth. The lie and the truth had to feel the same. And of course, her household are the most vocal advocates of something called undesigned consequences in the Bible. One kind that I've written a whole book on called Undesigned Coincidences connects the different accounts of the Gospels and the casual things that they casually mention. That casualness is very important. A full refutation is beyond the scope of this video today. Even when I was a devout, inerrant, Bible-affirming Christian, I found this line of thinking to be stretching the facts beyond credulity. Allow me to recommend a recent debate on this topic between Dr. Bart Ehrman and Lydia's husband, Tim McGrew. In terms of the undesigned coincidences, I, I think what we're overlooking is that there is a very wide and broad stream of early Christian tradition as people are telling stories about Jesus and his disciples before anything's written down. These Gospels are being written down years later, even if you date them early. They're years later. Christians are telling stories about Jesus and his disciples year after year after year, and a lot of people hear stories, and many of the stories are similar stories. And so, of course, when later gospel writers write down things, they've got, they've got some similar sources. I mean, there are, there are scholars, of course, who think that John has access to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which would mean that it's not a coincidence at all, that he simply knows these other gospels. But whether, but whether that's true or not, John has certainly heard many of the same stories told in slightly different forms that were available to the other gospel writers. And so it doesn't have to be some kind of weird, uncanny coincidence that they mention somebody and, and give some detail that coincides with what someone else says. These are stories that are in circulation. Or this article by Dr. Richard Carrier. The argument from undesigned coincidences is basically tinfoil hat. It lacks any scholarly basis, is completely devoid of methodology, and is mostly delusional. Many of the claimed coincidences don't even exist. Some are obviously just coincidences, some may even be copying errors. And most are even more obviously just authors embellishing or rewriting stories to suit their liking, using no other source than the previous gospel we know they were copying from. Or if you prefer the conclusions of a Christian, this article by Thomas Horatio. My aim has rather been to show that undesigned coincidences are no fast track to establishing the historicity of the gospels. One of the reasons why Williams, and to a greater extent, McGrew's presentation of undesigned coincidences will seem so compelling is because they are interested in the text as an apologetic. They are not, in this apologetic work, factoring in the much more difficult work which historians of the text and exegetes do in theirs. This is no attempt to denigrate apologetics, nor these scholars. It is simply to say that a short work, of the variety they have produced, cannot do justice the alternative explanations which may cause the appearance of some undesigned coincidence to disappear. Or we can get affirmation from renowned Christian philosopher Dr. William Lane Craig on the McGrew's enterprise in general. As I mentioned before, Dr. Bill Craig calls the Paleon approach, which is essentially the maximal data approach, forever 
obsolete. In reasonable faith, he calls it that. It is naive and outdated simply to trot out the dilemma liar, lunatic, or Lord and adduce several proof texts where Jesus claims to be the Son of God, the Messiah, and so forth. The publicity generated by the Jesus Seminar and the Da Vinci Code has rendered that approach forever obsolete. He calls the approach of William Paley, which is basically what I'm doing, I would call it a Paleyan approach, forever obsolete. So he's definitely trying to distance himself from that. And I think as long as you do that, you're going to not be able to give a strong argument specifically for the physical resurrection of Jesus. I agree with Craig that the liar, lunatic, or lord trilemma is obsolete rhetoric from an information-poor era. The person who wins me back to biblical authority will be primarily tackling the legend option that C.S. Lewis left off the table. As for undesigned coincidences, at this moment they go into the same category as the Shroud of Turin. I'll concede that I haven't done exhaustive research, but what I have read is incredibly unimpressive and utterly non-persuasive. I'm reticent to spend months diving into an argument that has failed to convince any significant number of Christian scholars, let alone skeptics of any stripe. And Lydia, in particular, is so credulous and straining so hard to make unsubstantiated notions fit that she actually proposes that the book of Matthew was originally written in Hebrew in order to prop up a ridiculed notion of disrespected church father Papias. But I think our Matthew, Greek Matthew, was a second version written by Matthew, but later. So kind of he- Hebrew Matthew, then Mark, then Greek Matthew, and probably uh, after that, or approximately at the same time as Greek Matthew, uh, Luke. I don't think Luke had access to Greek Matthew. That I think is clear. He may have had access to Hebrew Matthew. That's about as tinfoil hat as I've ever seen from an apologist. Call me when undesigned coincidences have won the support of your own camp, and then maybe I'll dig in. I rely on people that see value in my work, people like you that watch videos to the very end, to keep the lights on around here. Literally, this is how I feed my family. Hey, me too. If you haven't heard, I've recently taken on Apologia full-time. So, if you support what we do, leave a super thanks with your question or comment, and I'll definitely respond. Until next time, later. Later.